Welcome to Slaying Your Giants. I'm your host, King David Haynes. Glad you could be with us for another episode. Our guest for this episode overcame a 16-year addiction to crack cocaine. She has lived more than 22 years in recovery, but admits it's an ongoing process, as a lot of us know. She has earned three degrees with numerous honors. M.L. Holly is our guest. She is a speaker, a mental health and substance abuse therapist, and life skills and crisis specialist. She is the author of, of Letters from Prison, and her latest release is Swimming in Addiction. Welcome to the show, Miss Holly. How are you? I'm so fine, thank you very much. Well, we we really appreciate you being with us today uh, to help inspire our listeners uh, with your story, and we'd like to get right into it. I'd like to ask you, uh, where were you born? I was born in Stanford, Connecticut. All right. Beautiful place up there. Yeah, I've been there. Uh, it is. It's very pretty. Uh, did you grow up there? I lived there until I was 36 years old. And um, I called myself escaping from the traumas and dramas of substance abuse and came to Chattanooga to call myself getting clean or starting fresh without thinking that everything that you've already experienced in the way you think you will bring with you if you have not fixed it. Yes. So, you know, I had come to Chattanooga to visit my sister who was already living here and I was here for two weeks. Well, that was the plan. And it was so boring. I was like, I don't know what you do here, and I don't know how you live here. So I managed to make it through the two weeks without any drugs, of course. And then as soon as I went back home, I was right back in the game. But I was under the impression from that one visit that they don't do drugs in Chattanooga. It's just too boring down here. And unfortunately... When I moved here, that's how I was thinking, and my husband at the time was already down here, had gone into the CADIS program, which is a substance abuse program, and the house that he was staying in was the house my sister was living in when she moved here because her son's father owned the house, and he lives in California, and I did not know until I had been here for a couple of weeks before there, I realized there was a crack house down the street from where we lived. Mm. So it, it didn't take long for me to fall right back into what I was doing in Connecticut. So geological transplant does not stop you from doing what you do. Yeah, they, they call yeah, that they, the uh, geographical uh, solution geographical. to the problem. So that problem. doesn't work. Right. I can tell you that. I can tell you. So now, what now, was what was Stanford like was Stanford? during your formative years? I, I, what what was it like in Connecticut? 
Can you describe that? It's, it is absolutely beautiful in Connecticut, especially around this time of the year. And there is a part in the book where I'm talking about how my dad used to load us up in the car and drive down the Merritt Parkway and all the trees are orange and the leaves are orange and green and red and yellow and just beautiful all the way down the, the highway and you know I'm talking about it in the book like I'm excited about the colors and where do I look do I look ahead or do I look back because everything's just so pretty and it's it's pretty quiet there for the most part um, because we live so close to New York you know, we get a lot of spillage from New York, and, and it's, it, if you want to have some fun, it's easy to get to New York. I mean, my parents lived like five minutes from Greenwich, I mean, not Greenwich, from New Rochelle. So it's just beautiful there. I love it. And I just was there um, last year for a class reunion, mm-hmm. and um, I, I, I miss the beaches there. We grew up with three beaches. And I had to go to the beach and enjoy the beach while I could because we have no beaches here. No, not in Tennessee. I mean, what they call a beach to me is so not a beach. Well, that's all they have. I wouldn't think Tennessee had beaches. They don't, but they they keep telling me, like, well, we have a beach over here. And then I get there and I'm like, not a beach it's it's you know they man made it and put it beaches are naturally made by god right. not you piled a bunch of sand on something and here's the water You're right. it's just totally yeah. different and i don't really go to those places to swim or anything like that okay so now but, when you were in high school in stanford tell me tell us about your high school years how did that go for you High school years were a mixed bag. They, my sisters and I, we decided to not go to the local high school that was in our district because that's where our mother worked. And, which was a good thing we didn't because a lot of the teachers who have kids there, if the kids don't like your mother, they're going to pick on you. Which, that probably been a problem for us because... Pretty much most of the kids liked my mom. But, you know, when you start getting to that certain age and you want to do things that you think you should be doing, which doesn't necessarily mean bad things, just things that you probably should have reconsidered before you did them. You know, you don't want to do it in the same school where your mother works. So we ended up going to a trade school. So I actually have a degree in mechanical drafting and blueprinting as well. That's great. That's great. So, um, I was in a class with only three girls. I was in the highest class you can be in. And being in a class with all boys, hormonal boys. Right. And being a girl was an experience. And, um, but I loved school. I loved it. And, um, we graduated, well, I graduated in a class about 600, so it was a small school for um, for me, but it was great. I loved being there. I loved everything about the majority of things that we had to do in the school. It's just, 
you know, that's a really hard time when you as a girl have quickly developed. Right. And you mentally, you aren't adjusted to what's going on with your body and just trying to fit in with everybody. But we weren't allowed to date until we were 16, and that made it kind of hard because a lot of the friends we had were dating already. And, you know, you're always telling someone, no, I can't go out with you. And, uh, you know, but I think it was a survival test, and my sisters and I survived it pretty well. Well, I, I think well, it, it almost it, sounds it almost... more like closer to idyllic. You know, uh, with the beautiful trees, I've seen those trees change colors in the fall. Uh, you know, I've I've been around in in working and helping people recover. You know, I've just heard stories of devastating childhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that are, you know, really children in the middle of crazy situations. And well, that... That sounds pretty good to me. We did go through some stuff, though. I mean, with the kids that I work with today, or even the adults that I work with, a lot of things that I listen to about their lives, my life was nothing like that. However, my parents had problems. Um, My father was an alcoholic, although no one to this day has ever said it. And my father died in 2014, 15. And no one's ever really said it. But that's what we grew up with. So when you grow up with someone who's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, or Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, is an alcohol binge, and he's gone on Thursday because he gets paid on Thursday and then you don't see him until Sunday and when you do see him he's throwing up in the bathroom for hours Mm. you know you kind of get so adjusted to it that it's just the norm for you right so when people like my best friend in high school she spent the night at my house and I didn't know until just after the first book came out that when we finally got in touch with each other again, because she had moved to Virginia, we were just rehashing our old times together. And it was then when she told me, I remember I was at your house and your father was drunk. And I'm sitting there on the phone. I'm like, (laughs) what? I did not know. It just was so normal to me and my sisters. We just, all we knew was either daddy was going to be the mean drunk or the silly drunk. You didn't know which one you were going to get. And yet, when people would come to the house, we did not, at least I did not realize it was obvious to other people because it had just become what we knew. Sure, sure. Sure. That's the norm for you guys. Yeah. Now, what so about that? So the first time I thought about that, that how you get so enmeshed in your normal daily life that other people from the outside view it so differently than you do. Yes. And yes. the kids are, kids are, are you know, are 
resilient and strong and smart, and they will adapt to whatever the deal is. Uh, But still, and to them, it becomes normal. I understand exactly what you mean. So now, what about uh, colleges? Okay, you're an educated, uh, accomplished woman. Tell me about, uh, okay, you leave high school. Tell me about your, your college experiences. Well, the college experience didn't come along for a good while because when we were in high school, my parents, in spite of the dysfunctions that they had, which all families have some form of a dysfunction, just a level of, they always made sure that we knew two things. You are either going to, when you graduate from high school, go to college or get a job. There was no debate with that. And if you were to go to college and you lived at home, okay, fine. No problem with that. If you got a job and you lived at home, you will pay rent, which was a great thing because it taught us to be responsible when we got out on our own. And it wasn't a lot of money or anything like that. It was just the point of doing it. And after that, getting involved with dating and working and things like that, because I chose to go to work um, and to eventually led to the substance abuse. But when I went to rehab, I... Had some. There was a lady that came from vocational rehabilitation, and she came to visit the rehabilitation program. And she was talking about going to school and that they would pay for it. And so she wanted to know who was interested. And I think it was two people that raised their hand, and I was one of the two. And out of the two of us, I was the only one that followed through on it. So I did something that no one else had ever done at Cadis at the time, which is the rehab program. I started the process to go to college and praise the lord i had met i met with the 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 director of the program i was at for the the rehab and i remember him looking at me and telling me you know i i just don't think you're just going to make it in college because you're a crack addict you're a drug addict Mm. and you just Mm. you know and i kind of looked at him and it's funny because that day I had the Bible in my hand too and he made a mention about the Bible as well and I was kind of like well I'm going to believe that I can do this here and I'm going forward with it and I did and the problem was and I don't know how it is today but at that time they only got funding for people who were in their program and eventually working if you were going to school, that that did not give them funding. But yeah. I was determined I was going to do this here. It was a chance. I know when, to me, it was one of those when God throws things out there for you, you better really look at everything and grab what he's throwing towards you. And I took a hold of it, and I started the process of going to Chattanooga State. I... Started going to classes while I was living in the rehab program. They had to make adjustments for me because I had to have a place where I could study and things like that. And when you're in a program with a lot of 
substance abusers and street people that aren't willing to grab onto an opportunity that was there because the, without my parents pushing us, I would never even have saw this as a great opportunity. I would have just looked the other way like most of the people did. Sure. And sure. I just realized that I could not stay there and go to school when people were constantly talking about how come she gets to be treated special. Well, I wasn't really being treated special. They just had to make sure I had a place where I could sit and study and do what I needed to do for class. Okay, so now I, eventually oh, I, I left. That's that's yes. interesting. Let me stop you there. Just and we're gonna take a quick break. Okay. Slaying your giant is brought to you by Prodigal Sons Reentry Ministry. You can make a donation to help support the show and learn about our new program, Project Determination, at KingDavidHaines.com. Okay, we are back speaking with ML Holly. She recovered from a 16-year addiction to crack cocaine. She has lived in recovery, drug-free for over 22 years. She's an accomplished author. And let's get back to that, Miss Holly. Uh, so that that is unusual. You're, you're in rehab and going to college or starting your college career at the same time. And I applaud you uh, for having that kind of fortitude and and not falling in with the the regular, you know, lifestyle of drug addiction. But when you're around, even when you're in a rehab program, you haven't escaped anything because you're in there with people who are exactly like you in some way. Sure. You know, substance sure. abusers, alcoholics, um, have done some things to support their habit that you normally wouldn't do. Right. Um, right. You know, being in the, it's funny because when I first went there and I was listening to the stories and the, what they were saying about walking the streets, abandoned buildings, prostituting, and I'm kind of like, oh God, I'm not like that. Thank God. But, or however, however, I, it didn't take me long to realize you are just like them. The yeah. only difference is, is in the 16 years you were doing crack, and most of them had been doing it less time than I had been doing it, you just hadn't got to that point yet. That little three-letter word is a huge word. Yes. Yes. Because maybe year 17 out there doing drugs would have been the big difference between year 16 and I would have been prostituting and doing everything else. The thing is, is I've always had my first husband and my second husband. My first husband had brothers that were crack dealers. And my second husband began to be a crack dealer. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to do all the things that other people did at the time. You know, it was always there for me, pretty much. 
you know, my brother-in-laws would come over and bring over some crack and we just get high and do what we do. And my husband, my who was doing drugs, selling drugs, he would leave stuff for me when he would go out and do his business out in the street selling drugs. So I didn't have to really resort to a lot of things that other people did. But again, I don't know what would have happened if I went one more year doing crack. Well, I, so well, me I can certainly tell that. you it, it's, it's, it's no it's, guarantee. It's no, you know that. You know that. Any one I of know, those and, and days. Could have been dead. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now ML, do you remember <laughs> the first time or the moment that you became aware of drugs or witnessed drugs being used? What was the first time? <sighs> When I was 17, I moved down. I had broke up with my boyfriend, my first real boyfriend. So, of course, the life was over when you break up with your first boyfriend. And I was just like, I can't live anymore. I got to do something. And I moved to Memphis with my sister, Brenda, who is my older sister, with my father. Mm -hmm. And... We would come down here every other summer for about two weeks and spend time with my dad's family. So when I was 17 and I was so distraught over breaking up with this guy, I, I came down here and my brother-in-law played piano for Al Green. Really? Really? Yeah. I love Al. And I love it. it was just so interesting to go to his church and meet him and be a part of all that. And what people read about artists, musicians and stuff like that. In this case, it was true. They were getting high. They were high on stage. You'd watch them on TV and they, you, they would be high on TV, but they were up there jamming. That's when I really first started recognizing substance abuse drugs okay and when okay when and how when and did you realize and admit to yourself you know that you had become an addict well it never happened when i was living with my sister um we've i tried a couple of things there but nothing you know to get you it probably helped lead me to the path of being comfortable enough around drugs to to get into it more. But it wasn't until I met my first husband and, like I said, his brothers were selling drugs. And I would go see him and there'd be marijuana around. He'd be His brother would come over there to bag cocaine. And I started smoking weed, which was great at the time and eventually i i started sniffing cocaine mm-hmm. and then from there um the sniffing cocaine was a problem for me because it clogged up my sinus so eventually i had to give that up and then my brother-in-law came over one day and he said i gotta show you something and we were like at by then we were married and when my brother-in-law came over he showed us how you make crack rocks mm. and his cousin was sitting there and there was another friend there 
And so we're sitting around the table all really interested in this little thing that was clinking in the baby food jar. Because then you had to boil it in water with the baby food jar and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, and when they put the little rock in the crack pipe, and when it was my turn, it was like amazing. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. amazing. And to this day, I still remember that feeling and how good it was. And that is the whole problem because that first hit, I don't think you ever really get that first hit again to no, the no, no. The, the way you got it then. I remember and, myself, and uh, it's just so hard. I've tried to explain that to people that hadn't, you know, experienced it. And it's it, you don't even have the words. I mean, really, I and mean, to describe it, you know, a lot of people compare it to sex. Well, I, I'm not going to argue with that. I'll say that too. It, it just is a great, great feeling. And, and you want that feeling all the time after that. That's why they call it chasing the dragon because you are running behind that, that hit to get that repeat. It's, it's, it's really something. I mean, you, it's so good of a feeling, but you have no idea of the, the road that you are embarking on. Not a single idea. I mean, who would ever think this teeny weeny pebble would take hold of your life and become the master of your domain? Yes. It 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 is really it, it, something. Okay, and and okay now, you you've gotten into it, and and I know of course it's just the the train is just gonna keep picking up steam and speed. So when and how did your road to deliverance from addiction begin? And we know that your faith in God. Uh, is the main thing and it's what what delivered you ultimately but tell us about how did it start your road to the deliverance from addiction I, I, when we were growing up we were in church pretty much every Sunday with my grandmother and my mom and so we grew up knowing about God and understanding God as you can as a child. Hallelujah. I think that was probably the greatest key for me mm -hmm. because even when I was getting high and the reason why I hadn't done so many of the things that other people had done to support their habit or to get their drugs or whatever was because I still had that moral compass that my parents gave us in spite of everything my father had been doing with, you know, outside affairs and, you know, we still had that. And it got to a point where I would be trying to get high, but thinking I'm hiding from the outside world. But I would always say to myself, but hmm, you can't hide from God. Right. And right. but I was still you know, that drug is so powerful it pretty much kicked God to the side. 
and I would go on and do what I did. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. when my husband had become a drug dealer, I did not know that's what he was doing at first because he would have money all the time and he'd give me money or put this money in the bank or whatever. And I'm like, where are you getting this money? And he just told me he was out gambling, but it wasn't, it wasn't so much money that you couldn't believe it. Right. And then, then all of a sudden he'd be gone for three days at a time, no contact with me. Mm. And then I would Mm. see him three days later and, he would never really explain too much about what he was doing. And the reason why I didn't ask a whole lot of questions was because he always had crack with him. So I got nothing to argue with you about if you're getting me high. That's just how I was. Yeah. And yeah. it turned out one day I was looking for some extra crack around the apartment and he had left. And I said, I know he's got to have some somewhere. And I'm moving furniture. Now, at that time, we lived in a co-op apartment, which was used to be a hotel building. And so there was only one way in and one way out. And it was pretty small. That whole apartment probably was smaller than the living room I'm sitting in right now. Hmm. And I moved the dresser. And I saw, oh, my God, there's a bag. I know there's crack in there. And I picked up that bag. And it was so much money in that bag. I thought I was having a heart attack. Hmm. And I, I put it back because now I'm thinking, oh, my God, he, he's doing selling drugs and this is not good. Because it, when you have that much money floating around, you know, there's a whole lot tied to that much money. And it was like like over twenty thousand dollars or something like that. And I put it back and that was the end of that. I just waited till he got home. And when we start talking, then he explain how big this deal was and I looked at him and said okay look this is bad I don't like this here I thought before when I figured out that you were kind of doing selling drugs or something like that it was a little bitty thing but this is big and I don't like it and that means that there are going to be people who know that you're doing this here and know you got this kind of money and they're going to try to break into this apartment and you're not going to be here I am Mm -hmm. he just blew Mm -hmm. me off And he had a deal that he had to go tend to. So he took most of the money with him and left about $5,000. And I was so paranoid. And then he left me some crack to keep me shut quiet. So I decided before I was going to get high in that bathroom, which was my favorite place to get high, I was going to hide the money in the apartment. Now, again, one room apartment practically is not a lot of places that you can hide something. But I hid half the money in the roller skate, the roller blade boot, and then I hid the other half in a pillowcase on the futon. And then I went in the bathroom and I was doing my thing, getting high. And I heard this noise at the door and I called up my husband's name. And he never answered. And I thought he must be trying to get back in the house. But I'm locking the doors. I'm doing all kinds of stuff to make me comfortable to get high. Closing curtains and everything. So I go to the door. And I open it. And I don't see him or anybody. And I'm trying to figure out what the heck just happened. Because it was a real loud snapping noise. And I sat down on the couch. Which was sideways to the door. And I sat on the couch and looked at the door and I sat there until I realized I can see the door across the hall 
from my apartment inside. So what had happened is somebody came in, I guess, Jimmy the lock or something. And I ended up calling the police and they talked to a few neighbors who hadn't seen or heard anything. And they said, oh, you're going to be fine. This is a good lock. Nobody's going to break in here. And I'm like, I don't know about all that. I think I'm going to call a locksmith. Well, it was late. So the locksmith wasn't going to be able to come to around midnight or later. So I called my mom. And I'm talking to her to keep my mind occupied. And somebody calls on the phone. And they hung up when I said, hello. And then I switched back to my mom. And then somebody knocks at the door. And I said, hold on for a minute, Ma. And I go to the door. I don't open it. And I said, "Um, who is it? And they said, we're a friend of your husband. Uh, Is he there? And I'm like, no. Well, can I leave this number? And I said, slip it under the door. But they never did. They walked away. So I sat down on the couch again. And I'm sitting here thinking, what the heck is going on here? Then I hear this loud bang at the door. Now, this door is a red door. And while I'm sitting on the couch facing the door talking to my mother, when somebody kicks the door, I'm yelling, hey, you better stop before I call the police. Because I thought maybe it was some stupid kids or something like that, just being annoying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then... The second time I heard that bang, this red door comes flying open, two men with hoodies on, with guns in their hand, run to the couch, which was not that far from the door. My mom gets to hear all this here, who doesn't even know I'm doing drugs. And all I heard was the guns tap on my head and them saying, where's your husband? Where's the money? Where's the drugs? Mm. And I'm like, my husband's not here and we don't have any drugs here. And I was trying to tell them where the money was because all I needed them to do was get the money and go. My mother heard this here. They had hung up the phone. She's waking up my dad to tell him, you need to go over there to see what's going on with your daughter. And I sat there with guns pointing at me and one one guy standing at the door watching the hallway pointing the gun at me and I'm thinking if you don't really look at them they won't be able to say you can identify them even though they still had hoodies on you could still see their face Mm -hmm. and the other one's tearing up clothes out of the dresser and everything and I said you know what the only way they're getting out of here is I got to find the money and give it to them and I went to find the money and could not find the money Mm. I I was in such a panic I couldn't find the money and I knew where I put it and the lady across the hall one apartment over she was nosy thank God for her being nosy because she had heard the noise the man across the hall heard the noise he called the cops the lady in the hall made the other the gunman at the door tell the one that was saying killer 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 and I'm like, oh, my God, my this God. can't be happening. And he tells this guy, you better get out of here. Because the woman across the hall had opened up her door to see what was going on. So he leaves. But this guy stands in the doorway pointing that gun at me, which he never took off of me. 
and looked at me and I'm kind of looking at him but trying not to look at his face and I'm thinking oh my god what's about to happen if he shoots me am I going to be a vegetable am I going to be paralyzed am I going to be dead you know I'm just things are running through my mind all crazy like and he, he pulls the trigger and I'm like yelling out Jesus and the gun didn't unload it, it no bullet. I mean, there was a bullet, obviously, probably in it, because he wouldn't have pulled the trigger if there wasn't, because he really knew I could identify him. Man. I stood there. He stood there. We're looking at each other, and I'm like, what the heck? And he's looking like, what the heck just happened? And then he just ran. Well, and I just, well, that, is that is amazing. That is amazing, and you are under the protection of our Lord and Savior. He prevented that. Oh, yes. Oh, it was just. My God. I mean. Let's take a break on on that one. Take a break. Uh, You are listening to Slaying Your Giants, a syndicated podcast brought to you by Prodigal Sons Ministry. We appreciate your support. You are encouraged to visit slayingyourgiants.com and discover Project Determination. Be sure to subscribe to the syndicated podcast for more conversations about defeating your giants. We are back with ML Holly, who recovered from a 16-year addiction to crack cocaine. She has not looked back for over 22 years. And we are enjoying the conversation, and we appreciate you being here to inspire our listeners. ML, we, we, we were inspired to produce this podcast because there's a need to provide faith-based solutions. Uh, we, we, we're not against any kind of other way to recover. Right. And, and we support everybody in recovery, but uh, we were led by the Father to create this podcast because there are those that can use faith to overcome any addiction, sex, gambling, right drugs, uh, shopping, just all kind of people are are suffering with all kind of addictions. And we know that faith in our God and our Lord Jesus can carry you out of these addictions. So oh, it definitely can. That's yeah. uh that's that's what how we got here and we know that presenting these real life examples will bless someone and give them what they need there's there's someone listening from Seattle or Louisville or Buffalo New York or wherever they are who can identify with what you have gone through and so just know that Giving your story and testifying uh, is is a blessing to someone. We don't even need to know who it is, uh, but God knows. 
Right. Yeah. And so that's, uh, you know, that's, that's our purpose here. And, and do, you know, I wanted to ask you, uh, do you agree that addiction is a type of spiritual warfare? I think it's a, a mixture of several things. Um, you know, when genetics, um, environment, um, I think for me, it probably was more a spiritual warfare because I, I learned to believe that I went through what, I mean, through my substance abuse history, I have been physically abused, emotionally, verbally, sexually abused. I've gone through the game and almost murdered and all kinds of crap. And I just think that God chooses certain people to walk through this fire and he protects them all the way. Because I should have overdosed. I can't tell you how many times. I've tried to commit suicide three times. Mm. Um, Mm. You know, the things that I have been through. And... Because you, it is very hard to talk to somebody that's had a, 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 an addiction if you've never experienced the addiction. Yeah. And it's not that you can't. Yeah. It's just yeah. my history as a counselor, one of the first things I do when I know I have a, a, a substance abuser in my office for the first time and I'm doing the assessment, I will tell them, okay, look, I'm not here to judge you. I got too much baggage of my own to be judging you, but I'm going to tell you that I'm a recovering addict. So I get it because I've watched them take almost a sigh of relief. I've gotten more information out of them than my co-workers who are counselors who are not substance abusers or haven't been substance abusers that is not their specialty they've given me clients that they've tried to work with and said they really need to work with you because you get it so you know i just think that god put a lot of us in this position to walk us through it through all the things that we went through that were not good and pulled us out on the other end and pretty much said, now, it's your job to go forth and teach and that, help. That's a, that's a beautiful that's a way good. to put it. That is what has that happened in my life. My he, life. He kind of picks you up and dusts you off and gets some knowledge into you and then sends you back out there. To, exactly. To help us. There's families out there that don't get it. They don't understand why their husband, brother, sisters, their child are doing these drugs and alcohols and can't stop. They don't get it. I sit there and I have to work with the families and say, okay, let me explain this to you. And let me tell you what you need to stop doing Mm -hmm. and what you need to be doing. Because you have experience. Yeah, and I've had more family members really thank me. For what I've said to them and how I've worked with their family member. I really believe God creates soldiers for these particular things out there. Because I don't know how I could have survived over almost overdosing several times. Um, three suicide attempts. Somebody pulling the trigger of a gun and no bullets coming out of that gun. And he's looking shocked like, what? Hmm. 
that is a God thing, and I will go to my grave saying that, and that is why I I don't, when I talk to people, I don't do the whole throw the Bible at them thing and all that. I make sure they understand I am a Christian, and that's why my sobriety stays in place and has stayed in place all these years. Amen. I said, I walk in the light of God. I know when I step out of that light, I'm doomed to end up where I was. Amen. And Amen. when I die, I don't plan on meeting God high. That is my plan, not to do that. I don't want to take everything that God has given me in sobriety and cast my pearls upon swine. I just don't want to do it because I can drive in my driveway and see this beautiful house that I have, a car. Um, I have a sports car. I never thought I'd have a sports car that I use. I drive on the weekends. I have a job. I have life. I, you know, I have so many wonderful things that I know I got through my sobriety, which is through God. The one thing I will not do to people is force them into my way of sobriety because I know you can push them away. I just kind of lead them along and then I let them open the door for me to share my spiritual part of it. And, you know, I get a lot of clients that are like, I really, really want to do that. I really admire you. I said, you can do this. You just have to believe That's right. that you can do That's this. Right. That's right. You have to want that more than you wanted that crack rock or that that meth that you were Be just as determined in your recovery as you were in copping your next note. Be just as determined. Work just as hard to recover as you did to score or to raise the next money that you need to score with. It's a lot of work. People don't realize that being an addict yeah. Is a lot of work. You yeah, got to plan. They, and, and they're very ingenuitive. <laughs> they're very creative. They come up with all kinds of ways. And I have to tell family members, when they're always worried about them being homeless, if, let me tell you something. It takes a lot of knowledge. As stupid as we may be, in a way, it takes a lot of creativity to survive out there, and your child out there is not as homeless as you may think they be, may be. Because <laughs> whether they're sleeping in an abandoned building or not, you know, in the substance abuse world, that's not quite homeless for us. Okay, but, you know, where to get food? And oh, wait, do you bring? Let them come home and eat and shower and stuff. Hey, they're not stupid. They know where they can go. Right. So, right. you know, it takes a lot of manipulation that takes a lot of creativity to do what you do for all those years that you do it. And if, if you turn and that around and that sought God with that kind of fervor and passion, you won't find it hard to find it. ML, let's, uh, we, we are approaching the end of our show. Let's talk about your book, Swimming with Addiction. I am always interested to learn because I have a book. Uh, I wrote a book, A Lame Man Healed. I'm always interested to learn how authors came up with their titles. What inspired you uh, to to title your book, Swimming with Addiction? Um, I actually was going to title it Swimming in Addiction on the, far, the Deep End of the Pool. 
and my agent was like, that's a little much, so let's cut it down a little. Um, because sometimes when you're just in the midst of all this, you're, you're being evicted. I mean, I was never homeless, but I, we've been evicted when I was married. We've been evicted from several places because we spent our money on drugs and not rent. Sure. Um, sure. You trying to find places to stay, trying to find food. I mean, I used to go to my sister's apartment and steal food out of her house because she gave me the key because I was hungry because I spent all my mother money on crack. Um, everything that you go through, you're always gasping for air like when you're about to drown. I see. I, I and see. you, you kind of see what's above you, but you're just having that struggle and you keep going back under the water. I see. Now, so that, it does seem like it's I, I, I fit so well. That. I can see that. That's great. Okay, well, we are. Uh, what about the cover? The cover is awesome. Did you choose the cover? The cover, I, when my cover designer, I had told her about the book, and then I forgot to tell her something, and I sent her an email, and I said, hey, you know what, I forgot to tell you this. When we were little, my father used to come home with a bag of, brown paper bag of candy, and there'd be cinnamons, and root beer candies, hard candies, mm-hmm. and butterscotch, mm-hmm. and my favorite has always been the cinnamon candy. And I still carry that cinnamon candy is in my house. It's in my purse. It, it, it's always available to me um, <laughs> because it just reminds me of when I was small and things were in my mind okay because sure. we didn't really understand the problems my parents were having. And she put the jar laying down on its side because that meant there was a problem. The candy had spilled all over the table. There's a problem. And if the glass was standing straight up and the candy was all in a glass, then everything's nice and neat and tied up with a bow. So that's kind of like, because in the book, there's a scene where I steal money from the housing authority and I feel candy in my pocket as I'm on my way home. And then I realize how good this candy has always been, but I don't deserve it. And I couldn't even eat the candy. So it's just a reference to, you know, the mess that spilled all over. Sure. I got you. It's just always interesting to me uh, because I knew it meant something to you. And I just wanted to bring that out. Okay. Now we are nearing the end of this episode. We want to thank you for joining us. ML Holly. And we want to ask you now, do you have contact information, uh, website, tell the listeners, how they may get your book, uh, take your time and, and go ahead and, and tell us how to contact you and how to get a copy of your book, Swimming with Addiction. You can go to Amazon.com and you can actually download it to your phone or you can actually order the book and buy it. You can reach me through my email, which is mlholly1958 at yahoo.com, no spaces. Or you can send me a text at 423-637-2356. And I've had people see articles about the book and have actually reached out to me to try to help them. For a family member, the thing is, is 
you're help you're asking me for the help they're not so i don't have a problem with trying to help them but they have to want the help and call me right that's right. that's a that's an important key yeah so i love text messages because i'm always busy and I'm looking at my email or I mean my text messages a lot of the times and my emails and things like that. So I'll get back to you. If you're asking me a question about something, I have no problem with getting to you. Okay, great. Great. So your book is on amazon.com. We're speaking with ML Holly, author of swimming and addiction. Uh, and also your, your first book letters from prison. My, my mother, uh, saw it and and she was thumbing through it and and she was really interested in it and 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 told me to bring it by her house when I I was finished reading it so uh, is that still available as well? You can find that on Amazon.com as well, or you could just write um, letters from prison. But you're going to have to put in um, Monique Holyfield for the author because. That was when I first started writing, and it's not available by the publisher anymore because it's been discontinued only because it, that was from, like, 2007. However, I just saw some posts where people are still using this book for their children, for their classroom. Um, I've had people come in my office and see the picture of the book and say, hey, we use that book in our program, in mm. their substance abuse program and things like that, so... It's still available online. Well, and this is the reason we do the podcast because uh, I'm just so happy to to be able to feature you and to put this information out that I know will help others. And we just certainly appreciate your time, and we thank you for being our guest today. We wanna we want all the listeners to. Re- Remember, uh, you know, if you would like, if you have defeated your giants, slayed your giants, and you would like to be a guest on the show, email us at slayingyourgiantskdh at gmail.com. Slayingyourgiantskdh at gmail.com. And we'll we will uh, contact you and and hopefully we can get you on the show. Thank you, Miss Holly, for your time. Thank you for your honesty, and we certainly appreciate you. And we thank God for you and your recovery. I thank God for it every day. Well, we'll speak to you soon. Uh, slaying your giants podcast closing off and we thank everybody for listening subscribe to the podcast so you'll get an alert for all the new episodes and until next week god bless everybody bye thank you